going to read a passage of scripture. You see it on your bulletin. It's from the second chapter of the book of Galatians, page 1152 in the Bible in front of you there in the book rack. But let's read it together. Let it come not only from our lips, but from our life and our heart. Together we read, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And he came to give himself to us. Join hands with one another on either side of us, across the aisles, wherever it's convenient. And with our hands touching those beside us, and the Spirit of God touching us in our hearts, let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you will come as you have promised to come with your Spirit to fill our hearts with your love and joy and peace. We come as empty vessels to you, the full fountain of the water of life. We pray that you will fill us, overflowing, removing all of the dregs and the dross within us, and filling us with your love. We pray, dear Father, not only for the water of life, but we pray for water for the thirsty earth, how desperately we need it. And we pray that you will hear the prayers of your people as we pray for the land, that you would refresh it with rain and refresh us with your living Holy Spirit. We pray this for one another and with one another. In your loving name, amen. Well, Linus was talking to Charlie Brown, and he said, I guess it, Linus said, I guess it's wrong to worry about tomorrow, just today. Charlie Brown said, no, I, that's not right. I'm not giving up on yesterday. I'm still hoping yesterday will get better. Well, I have good news for you. Your yesterdays can get better. He takes all of our yesterdays and turns our troubles into triumphs and teachers. He takes all of the stuff that's happened in us and he works it all together for good. Now, it wasn't all good. I don't know about your life. I only know about mine. But he takes everything, all of the stuff, good stuff, bad stuff, and he puts it together and with his spirit, he makes something good come out of it, not only for your good, but for the good of others. Let me ask you a question. How many of you had, I, I, when I was a child and had to come in and take a bath, I wanted to take a bath without water. Uh, <laughs> but my mother would always ask me, Buckner, have you washed behind your ears? How many of you had a mother that did, okay. Washed, Buckner, have you washed behind your ears? Well, I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you let God wash behind your years? To take all of your yesterdays, good or bad, up or down, and wash them away and turn all of that into something new and positive for you and for other people. God has promised to do that. God promises to do that. I have a book at home of just a collection of the promises in the New Testament. It's a book about that thick. Dozens and dozens and dozens of promises from the Lord. Now, if I promised you that we were going, I wanted to have you for lunch tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever, and I'd meet you at a certain place, 
chances are you'd take my word for it and that you would go to that place at 12 o'clock because you say, well, Buckner said he wouldn't meet me here. I believe he's a man of his word. And uh, you'd look at your watch and I wasn't there and you'd say, well, maybe he's just detained. And then you wait long enough, you find to go ahead and order and say, well, he forgot about it. Well, that can happen. I could have an interruption. I could forget. Uh, chances are I would not intentionally lie to you and say, meet me uh, Wednesday afternoon for lunch, knowing that I had no plan to do that and was not going to do it at all. I would not, with malice and the forethought, uh, forethought, tell a lie to you. Now, God, I can lie. You can. We all can at one time or another. But God cannot lie. He's incapable of it. He cannot lie. If he wanted to, he couldn't because it's contrary to his divine nature because he is the epitome of all truth. And God has promised that if you and I will trust him, he will save us. He will forgive us. Irrespective of who we are or what we've done, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no way throw them out. Now, he promised that. He cannot lie. He said, come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I promise to do that for you. You can trust the promises of God. And there are many of them. And Simon Peter writes about them. In fact, Simon Peter wrote two letters. We all like Simon Peter. He's someone has called him the American disciple. He's just like all of us, except only more so. He just, we like him because... We, fought, we kind of identify with him, what he went through and what he said and what he did and what he didn't do. But he wrote two letters to the churches uh, of his day, and one is called First Peter and the other is called Second Peter, which means it's the first letter and then the second letter. It's just that simple. Now, if you'd like to turn to the scripture that I'm going to read from for a few moments, turn to page 1204 in the Bible in the book rack in front of you or the first chapter of Second Peter. Dr. W.T. Collar was professor of theology at uh, Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth many years ago. And I, Martha and I spent the first two years at the seminary in New Orleans and then got to Southwestern, and he had retired, but I heard him lecture a few times, and I heard this story about him. Someone asked him once in a, a class, Dr. Connor, is salvation the end of the gospel? In other words, is that the whole purpose of the gospel? Is salvation? Is salvation the end of the gospel? He said, yes, the front end. It's the beginning. That's exactly what Annette sang about a few moments ago. That great day when you trusted the Lord. But there is more. There is more. There is much, much more that he wants to do in our lives. Surely he wants to save us when we die. But you know what? He wants to save our living while we're here. He wants to save our relationships, our friendships, our work, our involvement with others. Jesus didn't come just to save the soul as though it's some sort of little gland down there at the base of your skull that when you trust him, the Holy Spirit reaches in there and gets that little gland and saves that and the rest of you goes to hell in a handbasket. That's not the way it is. He came to save everything about life. He came to save every aspect of our relationship. And we'll talk more about the identification of what the soul really is and what life really is. But he has come to save us when we die. That's right. He's going to save us when we die. Trust him, he said. Put your faith in me 
and you will be saved. But the word saved is so much more dimensional than that. It's not just something down at the end of life. It's something in the middle, middle of life where we are right here, right now today. He wants to save all of you students in terms of your future and your work that you'll do and the person that you will marry and the place you will leave, live. He, he wants to save all of that. He's more concerned about our everyday welfare than we are. Than we are. He cares more about us than we care about ourselves. Hard to believe, but so. So he has promised, and Peter writes about this. Listen to what he says. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Read that. Abundance. More. There's more. There's more. There's abundant living. Grace and peace. Two wonderful words. Be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So by trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior, there is certain God wants to bring about abundant living in our lives, filling us with grace and with peace. And he goes on. His divine power, not mine, not ours, not the church's, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Goodness. Glory and goodness. Two great words. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them, through these promises, you may participate. Now get this. This is a great thing. Participate in the divine nature You become part of the divine nature of God and escape the corruption that's in the world caused by evil desires or by destructive passions. William James, the psychologist, said, much would I give for a constructive passion of some sort. Well, you can have a constructive passion. There are enough destructive ones or the uses of our passions in a destructive way. He says he will give us constructive passions, positive direction in our lives, participating in the divine nature. Now, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you die, you're going to go to heaven. But you know, he wants to do more than that. He wants to bring some heaven in our living while we're here, even in the midst of a lot of exigencies and tests and troubles and trials. The Holy Spirit has come to be our comforter, as Jesus promised. We prayed that prayer in song a little earlier. He's come to be with us through all of the travail of every day living. There is progression in the Christian life. Now, are we going to ever be perfect in this life? No, we're not. No one ever has been but the Lord himself. There's no way you and I are ever going to be perfect, but we can be better. We can become more like him. We can know more and more of his grace and of his peace and of his goodness and of his love. We can know more about that and we can have more love for one another. It is a never-ending progression of the multiplication of the Spirit of God within our lives and in our relationships. Perfection? No. Immunity? Are we immune to growing anymore? Developing? Maturing? I, uh, I hesitate to, uh, to mention this because sometimes someone says more out of me than I intended to say, or they hear more out of me than I intended to say. 
I was in a doctor's office a couple of weeks ago. Now, let me listen carefully. I am not terminally ill. I have mentioned going to the doctor in days past, and the, by the next Sunday, I have cancer, I have heart disease, I have a brain tumor, I have all sorts of things. So if anybody says, no, it was for a checkup, okay? A checkup. I was sitting there in the doctor's office, and a lady across the, we were kind of crowded there, she was sitting over there, and uh, we got to talking, and she had been here to church, and she'd seen television, and and uh, she was there for, uh, she has a serious problem, which she talked with me about, and we talked. And then her husband came, wonderful man, great big happy guy, ranch foreman. And he sat down right across from me, and he said, Buckner, do you have to come here to the doctor too? I said, yeah, I do. He said, why are you here? I said, well, I'm just going to let the doctor check me over. Now, I didn't know you had to do that sort of thing. Classic story of Martha's. We've been here just a few years, and she was in the grocery store walking through, getting groceries, and a lady came up to her, just registered surprise, amazement, almost resentment, and looked at her and said, do you mean you have to do this sort of thing too? And Martha said, yes, they stopped giving manna about 4,000 years ago. <laughs> and so, yes, I have to go to the grocery store. Yeah, we all have it. One morning of years ago now, I, I waked up, and I, I had flu, I had fever, I felt horrible. But like all of you, one time or another, you, you feel like there's a meeting that you're expected to attend, and you feel like you've got to be there. And I said, Martha, I've got to go. And she said, well, look, Buck, you are sick. You ought to get in bed and just stay here. Get some medicine. I said, no, I'll come back as soon as this meeting's over, but I've got to go there. It's essential. Well, I have no idea today what the meeting was. But I got up, and I was sitting on the side of the bed, had the television on, on the KMOL, then WAI, and watching the news, and Martha brought me a cup of coffee, and I was sitting there just trying to get my heart started and feeling terrible. And at about 7.15, 7.20, I came on TV. <laughs> I came on so positive, I jumped out of the set. It makes no difference what today is going to happen to you. God will be with you. Whatever the problems you've got, everything's going to work out today. This is going to be a great day in your life. It's just going to be wonderful. Boy, God is with you. Go out and meet the world. <laughs> and I sat there, and then I was gone. Martha said, did you hear that fella? I said, yeah, I heard him, but he's a Baptist preacher. He doesn't know what it's like out here in the real world. <laughs> he doesn't have to put up with the kind of stuff I have to put up with. <laughs> there is no immunity. We're all coming from somewhere, and we all want to keep moving somewhere. We want to have more and more of the grace of God to deal with all of the exigencies we have in life. He wants us to mature. He wants us to grow wants us to grow. About, uh, goodness, I don't know, a month or so ago, we read the scripture from Ephesians, the sixth chapter, and I got to thinking about it. There was a phrase in that reading from the sixth chapter of Ephesians, which I'm going to read to if you want to see it yourself. It's page 1160 in that Bible, the last chapter of the book of Ephesians. 
beginning with the last few verses, beginning with when he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And he goes on talking about we need to be equipped, spiritually equipped. See, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in higher places. And he says, therefore, put on the whole armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled about your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the gospel of peace as a firm footing. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Well, my mind just kind of stopped at that point. What shield is he talking about? Where is the shield? What is the shield? Peter's trying to tell us we're supposed to keep moving. Sometimes we seem to be stuck or sliding backwards. We need this shield to protect us. Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. He's wanting to add in our lives. It's an interesting statement there in the fourth verse. He says, therefore, these he has given us, through these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption. That word means subtract. Subtract these things from your life. And then in the very next sentence he says, for this reason make every effort to add. You see, addition and subtraction. He's come to subtract those things that hurt us and add those things that help us and that are good for us. For this reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Goodness. That's a good word. Every now and then I hear someone kind of degrade or demean a person by saying, well... They're just a do-gooder. Well, what are we supposed to be if not do-gooders? We don't need to be do-badders or enough of those around. In fact, the Scripture says Jesus went about doing good. And if he went about doing good, we ought to be do-gooders ourselves in his name and for his cause. You've heard me quote it before, the little girl who said to her mother, I wish, all, wish God would make all the bad people good and all the good people nice. Well, he wants to make us all nice. He wants to make us good, good people. And to, good, and to goodness add knowledge, and to add knowledge add self-control, and to self-control add perseverance, and to this add godliness, and to godliness add brotherly kindness, and then all of these qualities of brotherly kindness to love. For, this, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, you will keep, these will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. Now, who doesn't want to be effective and productive? To be protective, uh, pro what is the word? Productive and effective, we've got to have more. Add to this, add to this, add to this, and the Holy Spirit will do that in our lives. He will make us productive and effective. Well, what about this shield business? Where are we going to get something to protect us from all of the ravaging pressures that come upon us internally or externally. So I got to looking into it and I came across in my research a sermon by Dr. John Henry Jowett who was the Presbyterian minister of the 
Fifth, the Presbyterian Church on, on, uh, in New York, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Prominent preacher in American life early in the 1900s. And he talked about the shield. And it really helped me. It gave me an insight I had never had before. The shield. What is the shield? Now, he pointed out something that has really helped me to understand Paul. When Gordon McDonald was here last Sunday and preaching, we'd walk down the Musselman Carter and came back looking at the uh, Kenneth Wyatt's depiction of the uh, various apostles and disciples. And we came up there to Paul, and uh, that's one of my favorites. Sitting there's an old man writing with his own handwriting to the Galatians. And he, he said, uh, Bugner, Gordon McDonald said, Bugner, do you think you would like Paul? I said, yes, no, sometimes. He's a sort of enigmatic uh, individual. But when you start looking at the man, and I think here's the thing that, 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 that both challenges us and frustrates us a little bit, and John Henry Jowett pointed this out, to Paul, his life was not his body. To Paul, his life was not his flesh. To Paul, his life was his soul. He saw his body as just something to carry his soul around. Oh, yes, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to keep it as clean and strong as we can. That's why a lot of us exercise and do the best we can to stay healthy. For what reason? Because these bodies of ours are ultimately going to disintegrate irrespective of how much diet we take, how much exercise we do, all of those good things. Sooner or later, you and I are going to die and the only part of us that's going to live forever is our soul. Would to God we'd give one-tenth of the energy we give to our bodies that we would give to our souls because the part of us that's going to outlive these bodies is our soul. And Paul understood that. To him, life wasn't this physical life. This physical body with all of its infirmities and failures, to him, it was his soul. And so I turned, and I want you to turn also, to 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. If you want to see it in your, the, book, uh, the Bible in the book rack in front of you, page 1149. Now listen to what happened to this man. They were questioning his authenticity as a preacher, as an apostle. They were questioning him, giving him a hard time there at Corinth. And so he felt like he had to defend himself. He had to give his credentials. And so that's what he does here in the latter part of this chapter. What everyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I dare also to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. Parenthesis there. I am more. I have worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. 
who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness, for my weakness is made perfect in strength, he said. In the 12th chapter, he says, There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made complete or perfect in weakness. Where's the shield? I mean, this shield is supposed to protect us from all these fiery darts of the wicked one. Where's the shield? Where was it for him? Where's the shield? To Paul, his life was his soul. It was his soul he was concerned about. Paul wasn't looking for a shield against failure. He wanted a shield against pessimism, which is born out of failure. He wasn't looking for a shield against injury. He was injured often. He was looking for a shield against resentment and revenge. His soul, his attitude. He wasn't looking for a shield against disappointment. He had much disappointment. Disappointment in churches that he'd worked with at Corinth and even at Galatia. Church stress with people, disappointment with Demas, who was his co-worker and left him because he loved the things of this world. He had disappointments, but the shield wasn't to keep him from having disappointments. The shield was to keep him from having bitterness because of those disappointments. His soul he was concerned about. He wasn't looking for a shield against labor, difficulty, work, good work, church work. He wasn't looking for a shield from the difficulties involved in that. He was looking for a shield against fear that he wouldn't be able to do it right and live up to the calling of God. His shield was his faith in Christ. It wasn't the church. It wasn't sacraments wasn't a creed. It was a personal, intimate, individual relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that, Paul could take the long look. He could take the long look. He looked at the whole campaign, not just every single battle. You win some, you lose some. But the shield is there to protect your soul. And your soul will grow spiritual muscle through the adversities of everyday living. That's what he's saying here. Surely we're going to have some thorns in our flesh. We all do, at least one. Some of us more than one. Well, what do we do? He says, I'll give you grace to overcome it. It's going to be there. That infirmity is going to be there. That loneliness may be there. That hurt may be there. But God will protect your soul because his grace is sufficient for you and for me through all of the adversities of everyday living. His grace, whatever the thorn may be. And we don't know what he was in Paul's life and because God didn't want us to know what he was because we'd all try to have the same thorn that Paul has because all of us have our own. And we all need the grace of God which is sufficient for every one of us. One of the emphasis of uh, preachers of an earlier generation or two used to use the phrase they wanted to preach to prepare a person 
for a good death. Prepare a person for a good death. That's not bad. That's the one thing all of us are going to do. We're all going to die. Now, most of us believe everybody else is but us. That somehow we're immune. No, we're not immune. We're going to die. I'm not being morbid. I'm just trying to be factual. We're going to die. Now, unless there's some very young children in this room, I doubt if anybody in this room will be here 100 years from now, 50 years from now, 10 years from now, maybe one year from now. Prepare for a good death. There's a marvelous example in the Scripture of preparation for a good death. When Martha and I were in the seminary in New Orleans, 1949 and 50, we took a class under Dr. J. Hardy Kennedy, professor of Old Testament. He was one of the most incredible men and one of the most remarkable teachers we ever had. They called him the judge because he walked so straight. He was just such a proper sort of person. But he was anything but judgmental. He was a man full of very great, very graceful, gracious man. And one day he said, the assignment uh, for the next class session is this. I want each of you to read the fifth chapter of Genesis five times. Read it five times. And then we'll come back together and you tell me what impression you got from reading the fifth chapter of Genesis. Now, if you want to look at that, you can, and I'm going to give you kind of a summary of it here in a moment. It happens to be the first book in the Bible, so you can find the start of it and turn to the fifth chapter of Genesis, and you will find, you will find this incredible story of a man. Well, let me tell you, he was a seventh descendant from, uh, from Adam, you know, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and Cain killed Abel, and so they had another son, their third son. His name was Seth. And it was Seth from which the lineage of David, uh, of uh, Adam and Eve came to move toward our Lord. Not Cain, but Seth, the other son. Very, very important person to read about and study in the Scripture. Now, Seth was born, and he had a son named Enosh, and then Seth died. Enos then had a son named Kenan. And then Enos died. And then the cycle goes on. Enos, Kenan then had a son named Mahalalel. And he then died. And then Mahalalel had a son named Jared. And then he, had a, he died. And before that, he'd had a son named Enoch who was the father, the scripture says, of Methuselah. Martha and I read that thing through five times and we didn't get it. Nobody in the class got it. And he said, did you read it? Everybody read it? Well, I said, yes, we read it. What'd you see? Can you see it? Look with the eyes of your soul and not just with your head. It says, Enoch was born? Had a son, Methuselah, and Enoch 
walk with God and was not, for God took him. Don't you see it? What a picture that is of life. So many live in this cyclical concept of life. You're born, you have children, you die. Born, have children and die. Born, have children and die. But suddenly something happens when a man says, I'm going to walk with God. And I'll never walk alone. Because when the time comes for me to die, he'll walk me right on in to the heavenly city. If you're a Christian, you will never taste death. Oh, you may die, but you'll never taste death. Well, the Scripture says Jesus has tasted death for every man. He has swallowed up death in victory. And when people are going to say, well, he's dead. He's not dead. He's more alive than he's ever been if he's a Christian because he walks right through that door we call death into everlasting eternal life. And here is a, peer, a picture in the fifth chapter of Genesis. If you walk with God, he'll walk with you all the way to his house. And someone described it beautifully. They said, Enoch and God were walking together in the garden in the cool of the day, and God said, Enoch, we're closer to my house than you are to your house. Why don't you just come on and stay with me? Everybody who's ever walked with God walks right on in to eternal life. You want to prepare for a good death? Start walking with God right now. Start today. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, start today. If you're a Christian, everybody that became a Christian in the New Testament made it public. If you never made it public, do that today. Do that today. Or to come be a part of the life and fellowship of this church and walk down this aisle as an outward indication of your walk with God and say, I want to be a part of the family of God in this place. I'll be here to greet you and so will some others. But start that walk today. Very, very important, not only for today and tomorrow, but for the endless eternity that's beyond out there where all of us will be someday. Do you realize you and I will be conscious and alive a million years from today? Where will we be? Walk with God and you walk right into the Heavenly Father's home. That's His promise. He cannot lie. And you'll keep it. Trust him. Put your faith in him. Trust him. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand and sing.